Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837, and FSP, dedicated to food service excellence. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of Love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents the Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, our first reading for this fourth Sunday of Lent is taken from the second book of Chronicles from the Old Testament. We don't comment enough on this book, and I think the passage for today makes for bracing Lenten reading. It's a sort of historical survey. The author is looking at the sweep of Israelite history and making some very strong statements about it. Let me read to you just a little bit from it. All the princes of Judah, the priests and the people, added infidelity to infidelity, practicing all the abominations of the nations and polluting the Lord's temple, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. This is familiar prophetic territory. God had chosen Israel as his special people. He had given them the law. He had told them his will. But then, generation after generation, the Israelite people turn away from God. Here he says, princes, priests, and people, everybody, added infidelity to infidelity. This stiff-necked and unfaithful people not responding to God's law. What does God do? Early and often did the Lord, the God of their fathers, send his messengers to them, for he had compassion on his people. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his warnings, and scoffed at his prophets. There's another central theme in the story of Israel. God sends his prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the rest of them, to get the people back on track. What do they do? They scoff at them. They rebuke them. They ignore them. Then what happens? Not nothing in the biblical vision. Listen to what happens. Until the anger of the Lord against his people was so inflamed that there was no remedy, then he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young in their own sanctuary building, sparing neither young man nor maiden, neither the aged nor the decrepit. He delivered all of them over into his grip. Finally, their enemies burnt the house of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, set all its palaces afire, and destroyed all its precious objects. Terrible message. The destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple, followed, of course, by the Babylonian exile. How does this author read Israelite history? God chooses a special people. He gives them his law. When they disobey, he sends prophet after prophet to them. When they rebuke them, finally, his judgment falls. Friends, we can turn away from this biblical theme of God's judgment. But that's our problem. We can ignore it. 
we can pretend it's not there, but then we're not reading the Bible well. Because this theme is all over the place from beginning to end. What does it mean? It does not mean, first of all, it does not mean that God is vindictive and arbitrary. That God is so offended that he sends this terrible suffering on his people. Rather, I think it means this. Our God is such that he allows us to feel and experience the consequences of sin. Sin, the rejection of God's law, carries with it consequences, whether we like it or not. God's judgment in the Bible is a kind of bringing to light, allowing us to see and to feel the consequences of sin. So in this case, individual sin, yes, but also a kind of national sin, a national apostasy and disobedience, leads by a kind of inexorability to the destruction of the nation. Mind you, God uses the Chaldeans. God uses them as the instrument of his judgment. I know this language makes us uncomfortable. We're all the children of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment taught us to privatize religion. Religion has to do with, well, the movements of the heart. Religion has to do with maybe the way we conduct our affairs among each other in a very small and private way. But don't mix religion and politics, the Enlightenment taught us. Don't look for God and God's action in the movements of the nations. Well, that's the Enlightenment's message. It's not the Bible's message. The Bible couldn't be clearer. You can't separate religion and politics. You can't separate God's action in my heart from God's action among the nations. That we should see the movement and will and intention of God in the great events that happen to us personally and nationally is a biblical intuition. Can I give you two examples of this? Two relatively contemporary examples of it, perhaps to show that it's still a legitimate way of seeing things. Abraham Lincoln's one of my heroes, someone I've read about and studied most of my life. Lincoln's relationship to religion is a very interesting, ambiguous one. On the one hand, Lincoln was fairly suspicious of organized religion. He was never really a member of a church. And he was skeptical, it seems to me, about the official preachers and proclaimers of Christianity. At the same time, Lincoln had a deeply biblical imagination. Where did it come from? Well, of course, he had very little formal schooling. We all know that. He only went to very primitive schools for about a year. But Lincoln, who is obviously a very brilliant man, read basically two books. He read the plays of Shakespeare, and he read the King James Bible. One reason, by the way, he was such a great writer himself, such a great speaker. When you read Lincoln, you hear the cadences of these monuments of the English language, Shakespeare and the King James Bible. But I think he took in from the King James Bible much more than simply great English rhetoric. 
He took in the spirit of the Bible. He read his life, and he read the world according to biblical categories. Nowhere was this clearer than in his famous second inaugural address, given in the March of 1865, just before he died. Lincoln was reflecting on the cataclysm of the Civil War. You know, people say World War I was the first great modern war. In some ways, I think the Civil War, the American Civil War, was the first modern war, by which I mean a war of terrible destructiveness. As the thousands, then the tens of thousands, finally the hundreds of thousands died. The nation reeled, the world reeled. Abraham Lincoln, in 1865, is reflecting on this maelstrom, this cataclysm of the Civil War. Listen to what he says in one of the most famous passages of this second inaugural address. He's speaking now of the continuation of the war. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's one of the most extraordinary statements ever made by an American statesman, it seems to me. What's Lincoln saying? He reads the Civil War as God's judgment. God's judgment on what? On this original sin of slavery. Mind you, in the second inaugural, Lincoln is not one-sidedly blaming the South. He sees both North and South as implicated in the institution of slavery. What was the war? It was a kind of judgment or allowing the nation to feel the effects of this terrible injustice. When I first visited Monticello, Jefferson's great home, you see above ground and above the sight line this magnificent structure. And then you begin to notice as you get closer, below ground, below the sight line, the terribly primitive slaves' quarters. Jefferson, this great spokesman for liberty and equality, yet was a keeper of slaves. And in some ways, the beauty and glory of Monticello was made possible by this slavery that Jefferson not only tolerated but took advantage of. To me, that vision summed up this original sin that Lincoln saw, that our nation that was conceived in liberty, that was dedicated upon this proposition that all men are created equal, yet has within it this terrible sin of slavery. Listen again to that line. Until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. Lincoln read, read the destruction, the death of the Civil War as a kind of price paid for the blood drawn by the lash of slavery over the previous 300 years. Primitive way to read things? Naive, superstitious? I don't think so. Deeply biblical way to read the events of the nations. Just one other example. 
Karl Barth, around the turn of the 20th century, was a young Swiss pastor, trained in the confident liberal theology of his day. A theology that said, with human progress, advancements in politics and culture and science, we will build the kingdom of God here on earth. Barth took in that theology as a young man. But then, during the terrible years from 1914 to 1918, while he was ministering in his parsonage in Switzerland, he surveyed the events of World War I, another cataclysm. What did he see? In his disillusioned eyes, with his disillusioned eyes, he saw God's judgment. What was the problem with the 19th century? A kind of hubris with our accomplishments in science, with our advancements in politics, with our cultural achievements. We will build the kingdom of God. Bart began to see this as a modern-day Tower of Babel. We will build this tower all the way up to God through our achievement. What was the inevitable consequence of this kind of hubris? The destruction of World War I. Was this God arbitrarily punishing Europe? No, but God allowing Europe to feel the effects of its sin. God allowing the people of Europe to feel the effects of this misconception. How do we read the events of our time? Just the shifting fortunes of nations? Just dumb luck? I think we should read in these biblical categories that when a nation falls into sin, it should expect the illumination of God's judgment. Sobering news? Yes. But perhaps for us, a very good and healthy, embracing Lenten meditation. God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. You want the kids to eat healthy foods. They want fast foods and sugary snacks. What's a parent or school administrator to do? Call FSP. We provide nutritious, kid-tested, kid-approved meal service to area schools. Our quality breakfast, lunch, and snack plans are easy to implement and affordable. Take the guesswork out of mealtime by calling FSP at 773-385-5100. FSP, we're more than a school food service.